0: This podcast was recorded from our weekly live stream. To watch this video or see other episodes of The Spiritual Journalist, head to thespiritualjournalist.com or find me on YouTube. You can find a link in the show notes hello and welcome to this episode of the spiritual journalist i'm so grateful you found us here and i'm really looking forward to today's conversation we have as our guest dr lottie valentine she is someone who's had two near-death experiences that completely changed the trajectory of her life she decided to go to medical school later in life as told in her book med school after menopause and then those near-death experiences actually opened her up to her psychic abilities that she now infuses into her medical practice. So she is a wealth of knowledge, and I can't wait to share it with you. Let's dive right in. I've always been a deeply curious person, talking with anyone who would listen and soaking in as much information as possible. So it's no surprise my love for storytelling led me to a career in journalism. But after nearly a decade working in newsrooms across the West Coast, I realized I wanted to start asking questions you probably wouldn't see on your local news. So I left my job as a morning TV reporter and started The Spiritual Journalist. This isn't just a YouTube channel, podcast, website, or social media page. This is a live conversation where you get to ask questions too, because I'm not the expert. I'm not here to tell you what to believe. My goal is to connect you with people who have profound experiences and inspirational stories to share, and we'll definitely mix a little astrology in too. So if you're like me, you have this insatiable curiosity and you love deep conversations too, Well, this is the place for you. Together, each week, we'll explore everything from crystals and tarot to mental health and the environment. There are no wrong questions here. My ultimate goal is for you to come away from each episode with a new perspective and an expanded consciousness. This is a channel for the collective. This is a community for the curious. This is The Spiritual Journalist. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I know there are so many things we can talk about. Uh, you are just a wealth of wisdom and have so much knowledge to share, but I love to start these conversations by taking a look at my guest's birth chart. I feel like it's a lot more fun than you just, you know, reading off your resume, looking at the energy that kind of is your makeup. How do you feel?
1: Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what you're gonna tell me.
0: Okay, this is just gonna be a mini reading too. We won't dive too deep into it. I know you said you're somewhat familiar with your birth chart. You have people in your life that kind of clue you in on what's going on with the energy. Um, So you know you're a Gemini born at the end of May, right? And you have a Libra moon as well as a Libra rising. Those are your big three. So you have a lot of air energy, um, which is probably why it's a little bit more natural for you to be able to kind of tap into information coming through You know, air energy is like what can be felt, not seen, you know, so that makes sense. Um, But also you have so many planets in Libra in your first house, as well as your 12th house over here. This is what we call a stellium in Libra, which means that you're very Libra. Even though you're a Gemini, you have a ton of Libra energy. Jupiter in Libra, your north node is in Libra, your rising is in Libra, and your moon is in Libra. So what this tells me is that Physically, you're very beautiful, and that's probably something that's shown up for you a lot in your life, your physical appearance, kind of creating this nice, harmonious, balanced version of yourself that you put out to the world. Is that something that resonates for you?
1: I would say that resonates, yes.
0: Yeah, and then your Gemini sun, you actually have two planets in your eighth house, your Gemini sun and Mercury and Taurus. Um, but that makes you very social. If you're a Gemini conversation is probably very natural for you. And with these two planets, you know, Mercury, uh, is ruling communication as well. With both of them in your eighth house, you probably like to talk about deep topics. You probably like to go deep with people in conversation, which I can relate to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then what's really nice about your chart is you actually have a lot of planets like spread out, it almost feels like they're sprinkled throughout your chart and they're all kind of funneling into your Libra rising. So, you know, you have your Mars in Pisces, which means that the actions you take are probably coming from a very empathetic, compassionate place. Um, you might feel like you're an empath as well. You can physically feel other people's energy, which makes sense with the kind of work you do. And then Venus is your ruling planet, actually, because you have a Libra rising and your Venus is an area in your seventh house, there's kind of this opposition that plays out in your life in relationships. The importance relationships hold for you, they probably hold a lot of weight for you or kind of dominate the narrative of your life, Um, but there's probably been some opposition between yourself and others, how much you're showing up for yourself versus how much you're giving to others throughout your life and these aren't just romantic relationships yes. really any sort of relationship mm-hmm. but when the ruling planet is in the 7th house it's very relationships play a big role in your life and yeah i mean your saturn is the, the other major planet i'll point out and it's in sagittarius in the 3rd house so you've probably gone through your second Saturn return. Now Mm -hmm. we have Saturn rotates around the sun about every 28 to 30 years. So that first Saturn return was probably right around when you were 28 to 30, maybe showing up, um, in an expansive way, maybe expanding your mind in some way. The third house rules communication and information that we're taking in. And with it being in Sagittarius, it's going to rule like higher knowledge or higher learning, but then that might've come around again for you closer to your mid fifties, uh, late fifties when Saturn made another lap around your chart. So I'm curious yeah. now I, to like, look at the timeline and talk through all these events. Cause I have a feeling it'll line up.
1: I think it does from what I've, yeah. what I've been told. Yes.
0: And then the last couple things I'll point out, your Midheaven is in Cancer, and that's the MC here at the top of the chart. That represents your highest potential in your career. And with your Midheaven being in Cancer, it's just showing that the more you lean into that ability to nurture other people and hold space for other people, again, what you're doing right now, the more successful you'll be. So you probably have this very nurturing, loving, almost mothering energy in your work that makes people feel safe. And then your north node is uh, conjunct to your Neptune. A lot of your planets are really close to each other in Libra, but specifically your north node represents the direction or purpose you're going in life, the lessons you're here to learn. And Neptune rules, um, it's the planet of illusions and dreams and subconscious, but it's also kind of what's beyond the veil, right? (laughs) Again, that energy um, of things that we can't fully understand. Mm-hmm. It can be confusing for most people, but your true purpose is to be able to tap into that energy, which again, it seems like you're very much living up to.
1: Yep, I would say it's pretty spot on.
0: Oh, good. Anything <laughs> else you wanna point out about your chart before uh, we go into your story? No, I think that that was a good summary. Okay, great. Yeah. So the first thing I noticed is that you were born in Sweden, in yeah. Stockholm. How long did you live there?
1: I grew up in Sweden. So I didn't move to the United States until I was 21. So I met um, an American exchange student in my high school that I fell in love with. And then we were that was my junior year in high school. And then he had to go back to the States to go to college and I had to stay in high school. And so we commuted, uh, commuted, you know, commuted back and forth uh, across the Atlantic Ocean for a couple of years. And then by the time I was 21, which was four years after I had met him, we said this is it we like we knew we were the right people for each other and we said let's just get married because we were both in college at this point but we couldn't get the visas to get in you know stay in each other's countries so that's how it all started so my family is actually still in Sweden oh
0: wow Mm -hmm. and so when you moved to the U.S. did you end up getting married to this man yep yes
1: yeah and where did you move to what happened then yeah so then we uh we moved to boston because he was going to be a senior at boston university and my first year i had been after high school i had taken six months off before i started at stockholm's university because our relationship was getting so serious and we said okay you know what would it be like to live there and i had already visited two or three times over the summer and christmas So I just went to a junior college in Boston for six months so I could spend some extended period of time there. And then I went back, started at Stockholms University and then we got married. And so by now he has one year left at Boston University. And I worked as the secretary at Boston University uh, for the biomedical engineering department. And I would type research papers for these professors. I had no idea. What I was typing because my English wasn't that good yet, and after a year, the plan was that we were supposed to go back to Sweden and I was supposed to finish my education at Stockholm's University, but then the professors at Boston University they were all saying, "Oh no, you're so you know you're you should go to the engineering school and you have a knack for computers," but I decided to go study business. Um, And so I studied business and computer science at Boston University and then graduated in 1983.
0: So this is all very practical. This Um. all feels very practical. (laughs) I have to ask you, because there's nothing in your chart that totally screams like you're a spiritual person. You know, have Mm -hmm. you always had a connection to spirituality or did that come for you later in life, as I'm sure we'll get into?
1: Yeah. No, I did not believe in anything that was spiritual. I did not I was confirmed and raised Lutheran because everybody back then, if you were born in Sweden, you were automatically a Lutheran. And it was the church that actually um, had all the record keeping of the people. So when you needed a passport as a child, we would go to the church. (laughs) So that did not separate, I think, until maybe the 1970s or 1980s, they separated the church from the state. And so, you know, that's no longer the case. But I so growing up like that, I was confirmed when I was 14 through the Lutheran Church. I went to a summer camp. Um, that was the shortest because I did not like going to church. I did not believe in anything. I didn't believe in God or Jesus. There is no afterlife. When you die, that's it. It's the end. And I did not believe in angels or a spirit world, nothing. So I had a very materialistic uh, view of life and um just did not it did not occur to me that that could be more to our <laughs> to our existence in this divine universe that came so from the, the near-death experiences so interesting so let's talk about mm-hmm. the first near-death
0: experience how old were you and what happened
1: so the first one happened after i gave birth to my third child so i was 34 at the time and we lived in huntington beach california at the time so And I had two younger boys that were six and three. So basically I spent, that was our playground. We would go to the beach and the kids would play. So you're just, you know, you're 34, you're in great shape. You're, you know, you're always outside. You're always, you know, I was at home at that time. I spent, I left work. I used to work for IBM, but I had taken a leave of absence so I could be home with the kids so I looked super healthy, which is why also I think people didn't think anything was wrong with me. But um, after that, third child was born, and she was born uh, in the middle of a seven point four and a seven point two earthquake.
0: <laughs> so wow!
1: She got the Northridge quake? <laughs> no, it was um, it was the other quake that was centered in the desert. I can't remember what it was. But she was born. We lived in Huntington Beach, but she was born in a hospital um, on the eastern part of Anaheim. So mm-hmm. right before the desert, and it was this earthquake was centered in the desert, so that's why there wasn't much damage. But it was a bigger quake than the Northridge quake, but the damage was so much less because it was re- it was the, where the epicenter was. But, so did you feel the earthquake in the hospital? Oh yes. Yeah. So the reason I bring it up is because when you when we went through that earthquake, the whole we lost all all electricity, and the hospital was a new hospital. And it was built on rollers. So the whole hospital was just swaying back and forth. And you know, in the hospitals, they have those um stainless steel trays and they have all the instruments. They mm-hmm. were they were levitating off the trays like this.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: And, um, the nurses, the midwives, my husband, everybody was leaning over me on the table. So otherwise, I would have literally levitated off the birthing table. So this happens, I'm contracting, I'm like three minutes apart from my contractions. And we lose the power and the windows, it was those windows from the floor to the ceiling, those huge windows and then ceiling tiles. And at that moment, I thought I was going to die. I honestly thought I was going to die because there was if, if the ceiling had caved in, or if those windows had shattered, we would have been buried in rubble. So my labor stops because it's, it's that bad. So my labor stops, the earthquake stops, but we have no power. The generator kicks on in the hospital. And then about half an hour later, my labor starts. And then I give birth. And then after they clean up the baby, and then we have another earthquake, the 7.2 earthquake. So she was born right in that little window between the 7.4 and the 7.2. And then they give me the baby. But as soon as they give me the baby, I have these tremendous cramping um in my abdomen and I just start screaming and I lean backwards and I'm just screaming to my husband, take the baby, take the baby. I can't hold her. And then I had um a lot of blood clots come out and they were you know massaging my uterus, but we had no power in the hospital. We we were running on generators. We had the the light of a night light in this room. It was you know kind of dark. And they put me on Pitocin drip, so I would, they would contract the uterus back down. And after two days, they said, okay, well, it looks like it's stopped and it's contracted back down. But then 10 days later, I started hemorrhaging. And I had really, really large blood clots the size of a, like a baby's head. And so I went to the ER, and they kept me for observation, they examined me and they said, oh, it doesn't look like much is coming out now. They sent me home, I hemorrhaged again, we called the hospital and they said, and as my husband's on the phone with the hospital, and it's like 10 o'clock at night, and I said, I'm not going, It stopped. They're not going to do anything. They didn't do anything yesterday. So they decide I should see the doctor next morning in Huntington Beach. I see the doctor, he does a visual examination. There's no blood test, no ultrasound, nothing. I mean, this is 1992. And so he does his examination and sends me on my way. And that evening, I hemorrhaged again, went back to the ER, they do another examination, they keep me for observation, and I'm lying in that room, and they close the door. And I start bleeding again. And at that point, I was so happy. I was, you know, I'm kind of excited, like, oh my gosh, I'm bleeding again, they're going to figure out something is wrong with me, because at Mm -hmm. least I'm in the ER, and now I'm bleeding. So this nurse just decides to check on me and you know I'm, I'm sure that was her intuition that said i should go check on this woman and her jaw just drops to the floor as she sees me um you know and how much i had been bleeding and so i can hear the call on the loudspeakers you know ob-gyn stat, to the er and this guy comes running in and as soon as they start examining me i have i hemorrhage again so at that point i try to tell him I can't, I don't feel too good. And this is the fifth time I'm hemorrhaging now in in three days. So you can imagine I have no blood left. Mm -hmm. So uh, the room fills with people and they, they start tipping the table backwards. And my head is going down. My feet are going up into the air because they're trying to keep the blood in the vital organs. And I have a nurse on my right that's measuring my blood pressure, got the blood pressure cuff on. And a nurse on my left that's trying to place an IV. And this is just... You know, back in 1992, I guess they didn't place IVs. If you go to the ER today, the first thing they typically do is to place an IV with just sodium chloride. It's just water, like body water, right? Because they need access to the vein. If something happens to you or if you go into shock or something, they can access your vein. But when you go into shock like that, like I did, the veins start to collapse and it's really hard to get the needle in. So I'm just on this table. And I'm thinking, what's taking her so long? Why can't she get into my vein? And to for me, it's just like I'm falling. So it's like I jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. And I'm just falling through space. And I think that was my blood pressure falling. And the nurse on my right, at one point, she, you know, she yells 50 over 15 hurry. And that just caused so much PTSD later because I would wake up years later after I was healing, hearing that panic and hearing all the uh, all the commotion in the e, you know in the ER. I mean, the room was filled with people, and it was shortly after she said that fifty over fifteen because at sixty over twenty now you're you can't support a heartbeat anymore. So I'm below where you can support a heartbeat, and then I keep falling further. So as she says that, it's shortly after that, that I realize that I'm actually dying. And that's a very different experience from when I was giving birth and I thought I was going to die. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is it. I never thought I was going to die this way. But this was a knowing that I was dying. I, I knew I was dying. So here I am, this very scientific worldview a materialistic view of how <laughs> how we exist in the universe so at that point there's nothing left but to pray to god so i pray to god and i say god please save me my children need me my children need a mother and it was shortly after that that and i i'm holding on it's like you're um imagine hanging off the cliff at you know, Grand Canyon with just your nails, and you knew at any second you're going to lose the grip. And it's that kind of a feeling. And I could feel that my soul was trying to leave my body. But, and I'm so I'm holding on to it. If you can imagine, it's just, just like, don't leave. You know, I got it. I got to stay. My kids need me. And then all of a sudden, It goes so fast because one second you're inside. It's not even a second. It's a milli, milli, millisecond. One instant you're in your body, but the next instant you're outside. And it's just like I got pulled out. So, and my first near-death experience is so very different from my second. So, but this is the first one and I'm just hovering outside my body, but there is this knowledge of unconditional love on the other side. I also knew there was no time on the other side on the other side of this veil there, I had access to past, present and future, there was no time. And just that unconditional love, it doesn't matter who you are, what you did, it's just, you're just divine, you're just a this divine spirit. And I also knew that I was connected to my body below me and that was my house, That's where that's where my soul or spirit lived. It lives in that, just like you live in a house or you live in a car. So that was the feeling that I belong to that thing down there, which is the body. And then, you know, within a few seconds, I get, I get sucked back in and it's the feeling is just like this large uh, vacuum cleaner. You just sucked back in. And again, it's just in a split second. And then um, they kept me for observation and, you know, I didn't have any blood in my body. And that next morning is when the, the spirit world started showing up. So, I had just lost my sister in law to cancer about 10 days earlier. And as I'm lying in this hospital bed, I'm so sick. And my hands are in feet, our eyes cold. I can't, my head is just pounding because I've lost so much blood. And I know that my sister in law is in the left corner in the ceiling above my bed, and she tells me everything is going to be okay. And I'm, I'm thinking, I have lost it. I have, I've had some crazy hallucinations. I've, I think I have left my body. And now I think I can hear my sister-in-law. And I was actually quite scared, because I was thinking that maybe I'm going crazy. And I can't tell anybody about this, because they're going to probably not let me leave the hospital if I do. And this very nice nurse that next morning, she said, Oh, did you have any experiences, unusual experiences yesterday. And she was fishing because obviously she was very familiar with near-death experiences. And I just looked at her and said, nope, 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 nothing. (laughs) Because I was so afraid that if I told her what I had experienced that I had left my body, she would lock me up and, you know, in the mental ward. Mm -hmm. So that was my first one. But my second one, two years later, was very different
0: because after the first one you developed a blood disorder correct
1: yeah so after the first then i got really sick so for the first three months i just slept and um i pleaded with a doctor to not give me a blood transfusion because this was the era of aids and anybody who Mm -hmm. got a blood transfusion back then got aids and i had three little kids that were six three and a newborn and i said i told them the first thing the doctor said is we need to give you a blood transfusion and i said Do you have to? (laughs) And I pleaded and I said, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy. Do you really have to do that because of the AIDS? And he said, let's see how quickly you make blood. So after two days in the hospital, they said, you're not going to feel too good for the next few months, but you are making blood and we're going to give you all these supplements and medications and whatever they gave me. I have no idea. And then they sent me home and my parents were visiting from Sweden. And I know that they changed their ticket twice to go home. And then my mother-in-law came so my daughter was born June 28th and I hammered that that was July 10th and then um they my parents didn't leave I think until the end of August or you know it was September by the time I was on my own and then I, you know friends would come and help and we had a, a cleaning lady that would come cuz I couldn't really do anything and I pretty much sat in a rocking chair until Christmas And then uh, it wasn't until the next spring, so my daughter is nine or 10 months old, and I start bruising. And even if I just put my knee on the floor, I would get a bruise, just touching.
0: Oh,
1: Yeah. So, and I had a huge, I I bumped into the baby's changing table, something that might give you a bruise the size of a nickel or, or dime. I had a bruise that spanned my entire hip area. And then I kept getting sick. So I had pneumonia at Christmas and I had a really bad ear infection with blood and pus in the ear. And the doctors, I went to a walk in clinic and the doctor said, Weren't you just here last week? And I said, Yes, I'm on day eight of the antibiotic you gave me. And they they were puzzled. They're you're you're even sicker. Now you have like double sided pneumonia. And so they took my blood and then they come back in the room and they looked at me and they said, Do you have AIDS or leukemia? And because you have no immune system. And I said, well, I hope neither. But this is what happened to me. And I bled out and I've been sick. And I'm basically just, you know, standing up, it took me six months before I could even leave the house and go to the grocery store and get a gallon of milk or some ice cream for the kids. And that was that would just wipe me out. So and then it was, you know, several more months. Now it's May of next year my daughter is 11 months and I'm getting these big bruises and I have pneumonia again so the doctors were all freaking out but we didn't have them so during insurance.
0: this time during
1: this time are you still like seeing things or was it just that once <laughs> so no so I would still hear things and so that was coming and going the whole time and then I would have all these electrical interference so my watches would stop so I got a watch and it stopped. Well, my regular watch stopped. Then I got a new watch. This was in the spring, it took me nine months until I could get in, you know, park my car and go inside the door at Target to get a watch. And then I wore it for five days, it stopped, brought it back. And they said, we haven't gotten any other watches back. This is so strange. And I picked that, you know, the same watch, wore it for five days, it stopped, brought it back. And they said, well, I'll just pick out another watch go with a different brand. So I took a different brand wore for five days it stopped and that's when my friend said you know what it's not the watches it's you and it was like that with everything if i try to push the vcr back then we had vcr you know for the kids to watch like a tape videotape and if i try to turn it on it wouldn't work if i couldn't press the play button nothing would happen so, I would teach my six year old I would stand like almost outside the room and tell him, "No, not that button, go up, up, that, yes, that one. the one with the arrow." And he would you know I would teach him how to turn it on. So there was a lot of um problems. You know, phones would be static and uh, just so what did you lot. think was happening? I mean, you're
0: still kind of trying to come to terms with maybe spirituality. Yeah. How were you rationalizing what was happening?
1: Yeah, so I really didn't understand and I thought that it must be something that the brain does when you're dying, it's oxygen deprivation, some kind of a hallucination. And I kept putting it to the side, you know, discounting it, saying it's not it's not true, it's just something the brain did and it can't be this way because when you die it's black and none of that is true. <laughs> so that went on and I was really then I was really sick for 2 years. Actually, I was sick for 6 years. And it was during this time um, when I was really sick. And so, you know, I had like 17 watches by now. My daughter's about three. Some of the watches would start ticking again. So I could get another week out of them and I would rotate them. To... <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> but now we know that that is a very common um thing that happens to people that have had near death experiences it's very common really? that they have, Yeah it's a, it's written up on the IONS website they've done you know research for oh my gosh probably since the 1960s or 70s and it was my mother-in-law I told her what had happened and she brought me Raymond Moody's book Life After Life and said what you what happened to you was that you had a near death experience and I still had a hard time with it um and then two years later, here I go. And now I'm really sick. And I'm constantly, I'm constantly, my my soul is never merged back with my body. And so it's constantly wanting to leave at the most um, not appropriate times of the day. <laughs> you're trying to get the shoes on your kids to go outside and play. And you're like, don't leave, don't leave. I need, I need to put my shoes on my kids. And it was just this constant battle of, of keeping the soul inside of me It was like, just always wanting to leave and then i would uh wake up in the middle of the night and take my head off the pillow because again you know it was just my existence because i was just sick and i i had something called like a bone marrow suppression so i wasn't making enough white blood cells platelets or red blood cells so it's a suppression it's almost like you
0: marrow. were like teetering on the edge of dying so i it yeah. sounds at least like you're kind of like Physically, your body's mm-hmm. like, I don't know if we're going to make it. And then spiritually, your your
1: spirit's like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to be in this sick body anymore. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's what happened it had to happen. I mean, I see it now. And if when I look back and I realize how sick I was, I understand the look on these doctors faces because I would never go back to the same doctor. And that first year. Um, When I had a big bruise and I went, I had pneumonia again. My daughter was 11 months, but my husband had taken a new job. So we were on wait that entire year. His company had gotten bought when he was like a regional manager. And, you know, we were in our thirties and everybody got laid off from top to bottom. And so he just, I mean, he was the sole supporter. I'm sick. He's got three kids at home. So he just took the first best thing that came up. It's not like you have a lot of savings when you're in your early thirties. So he took a new job. Then he took that for three months. Then he got a better offer somewhere else. He took that job. And then he waited three months and he got another job. And then we waited another three months. So for that entire year, since my daughter was born, born until she turned one, we did not have insurance. So it's, it's just ironic of, you know, what this, the society that we live in, that it's like that, that, um, it's just crazy. But so now when I'm looking back at it, With my medical knowledge now i understand i see exactly i know exactly what the problem was and why i was so sick because i had most likely idiopathic um aplastic anemia and that is the suppression of the bone marrow and that is what my doctor told me back in the early 2000s when i told him the whole story when i finally fessed up to a doctor and actually told him what had happened he said most likely that is what you had because Idiopathic means that we don't know where it came from. And women sometimes get that from just being pregnant. So this is something that can happen to anybody. You don't have to have a near-death experience and bleed out, but that is the picture that fits what happened. But I was really- So when was your out.
0: second near-death experience then? I'm like on the edge of my seat yes. over here.
1: <laughs> so then, so now, um, you know, my second near-death experience happened when my daughter was two, about two. And so now I'm in this position where I'm always waking up. My soul is always leaving. I'm always holding on. Um, I can't stand up to cook uh, meals for my children. I have a stool in the kitchen. I have to sit on a stool because I can't stand up because I'll faint. So I'm sitting, you know, cooking, you know, pancakes and things for the kids. And I kind of laughed because it was like my 90-year-old grandma. She had a stool in the kitchen. (laughs) And I remember that and I was like, I should just have a stool because I couldn't stand up. So anyway, I kept thinking, well, my bruises are getting better. And, you know, that instead of a a bruise that spanned my entire hip, there would just be, you know, the size of a tennis ball. Um, So I was getting better. That's how I looked at it. And my father was a, a, a general practitioner in Sweden. And so I had grown up with all the stories. And my dad would always say, you know, if you're getting better, don't touch it. Like, you know, if the body is healing on its own. So I kind of was raised with that philosophy as well. So here I am in the middle of the night, my second MDE, and, you know, I I struggled with this, whether do you call this a near-death experience or a spiritually transformative event? But now, like the naming of it doesn't really matter to me anymore because it is what happens. It is the experience of a near-death experience or a spiritually transformative event that changes you and makes you a different person. So it doesn't really matter what you call these uh, experiences. So here I am in the middle of the night, and I wake up again, you know, like I do many nights, and I take my head off the pillow, because I feel like I'm leaving again. But this time, I there's nothing I can do. So within a split second, I'm just out of my body. But this time is very, it's such a different experience. And I always joke that the experience I needed to have the first time, I didn't get it. So it didn't really transform my life path. So I had to have a second one. So the spirit world's like, ah, let's do it. Let's do it when she's, you know, in bed. She's not getting the message, (laughs) right? Just something else. (laughs) Exactly, because it's like, oh, she didn't get it. Like we got to do it again. We got to give her the whole, the whole, you know, enchilada this time. So I I tumble through space. It's like this tumbling through darkness. There's no tunnel with light, uh, which you always hear about. But actually, most near-death experiences don't have a tunnel with light. So it's just what we get from movies and uh, you know magazines. So I'm tumbling through darkness, and I get to this place, and I call it a mid-station only because I was aware that there were there were floors above me, so to speak, and floors below me. Just like if you go into a skyscraper and you it's got a hundred floors and you push the button on 50th floor even though you haven't been to the other floors you know that there are floors above you and below you so it was that Mm -hmm. sensation that um this is where i landed but i get to this place and i hear the most beautiful music and it's more beautiful than any music you can even make on the earth plane and i grew up playing the piano and you know i was in theater and voice lessons and singing And I sat at that synthesizer for, you know, trying to find any sound out of those over 200 sounds that could sound anything like what I had heard. But there was, I couldn't, I still have not found that sound. It is just um, more beautiful than anything you can hear here and very angelic. And so I hear this most beautiful music and I look around and I'm just in spirit, I don't have a body. And I see a log cabin and I always laugh. You know, people see flowers and fields. Like we all see such different things. I saw a log cabin. So I'm thinking the music must be coming from this log cabin. So I oh God, open the door, I look inside. There's nothing. It's empty. So then I turn to the left and I see another log cabin, which looks like the mirror image of the one on the right. So I look inside, nothing. It's empty. So then I become aware of this growing white light behind me so i'm like wow that must be coming from you know behind me so as my body sort of turns around i get uh so it's like you get immersed it's like being um in a dense fog but it is the most beautiful whitest brightest light you've ever seen but this this light is just unconditional love and you know that it's like this knowing that this is God or this is the divine source. this is you are with the creation of our universe or our experience, whatever you want to call it. But it's also in knowing that this we come from this light and we we carry this light within us. but we also we this is where we return. We return to this light at death. This is the unconditional love of who, where we come from, but in this light, there is an outline of angels and the music is coming from the angels. Now remember, I still did not believe in God, Jesus, divine source, angels, or and that you could even have an experience like this. So it's just interesting to me. So this is what I had to see. So I saw these the, the outline of the angels with the most beautiful music, but then I become aware of two spirit guides, and the one on my right communicates telepathically with the one diagonally to the left in front of me. And he says, what is she doing here? She can't be here. She has to go back. And I'm like, no, wait a 2nd I was like, I'm not going back. It's been two years of me trying to figure out what happened during my first near-death experience. And I'm like, how does this work? How can I still be me? How can I be outside my body and still be me? And the spirit card on the left says, if I told you, you wouldn't remember. So there is some way that they sort of can control what we get to remember or, you know, the messages. And then he says, but you will remember this. And then it is um, kind of like a movie screen just appears in front of you. It's just like all of a sudden you have images, but it's like I'm standing on the moon looking down on the earth. And then around earth, there is this um, like diamond shaped uh, silvery glittery what I call the fishnet because that's what it looked like. It looked like a fishnet because I grew up in Sweden. And on the in the summers, I spent my summers um, on an island without any electricity or running water. And I would row the boat for my grandmother early, early in the morning. And we would lay like five nets in the ocean to catch fish for the family. And when she brought the fishnet out of the ocean early in the morning and the sun sh- was shining on the fishnet, The water droplets would sort of glitter in the sun on that fishnet so to me looking down on the earth i'm like wow it looks like a fishnet around the earth and he said that everything on earth is connected to each other but everything on earth is connected up to this grid and with that message i get sent back into my body and you know tumbling back and within you know split second because Getting in and out of the body is—it's so fast that you can't—I can't even describe it because it's instantaneous. One second you're there, and the next second you're not, and it's instantaneous uh, moving through the space and time.
0: So, what happens
1: next? You have this profound experience. <laughs> you understand
0: at least there's some energetic plane mm-hmm. that we're all attached to. Did you instantly have this? Okay, I understand. And I, I believe in Source, God, Spirit, whatever. Or did it take some time for you to come to terms? With oh, this? it took
1: it took a long time because I would still struggle with it. Being such a scientist at heart, and also being raised in a you know in a science family, I had three older brothers. My dad was a general practitioner, an MD. My mom was a hospital floor administrator, so she was always in the hospital. Uh, one of my older brothers became a surgeon, another one an engineer, and, and, also, and then the, the third one a business person. But there was a lot. I was surrounded by a lot of um, science. My cousins were all doctors and dentists, and all my friends' parents were like doctors and nurses. So I was always surrounded by medicine and um, you know scientific evidence of how things are. So it really took me a long time, and it's interesting because it was over several years, it, re- it really took me a quarter of a century, right, to really put everything together and get to the point where I am now. But for the next 12 years, I would have, it would just be increasingly, I would be shown things, I would see things, and then they would happen. And I would tell, you know, my kids about it, or I would tell my husband about it, or I would write it down in a book, because in the beginning, I thought, oh, it was just, it was just a deja vu. It was just a coincidence. But then it started happening more and more and more. And so for over a period of 12 years to the point where, okay, they're talking to me. I know that they're going to tell me whatever they're going to tell me is the truth. And it, it took that long for me to to really believe what the me- that the messages I would receive were actually the truth or I needed to pay attention to them. So there are many, many stories of, of how they, or how it all came about.
0: When did you know? Okay, I have extra abilities now. I mm-hmm. I know you describe yourself as clairvoyant, clairaudient, clairsentient. Mm-hmm. Did those abilities all come at the same time, or was it slowly kind of opening up those channels?
1: It would yeah. Over a period of twelve years, those channels opened up one by one. So I would be um, shown things. So some of the things I, I talk about in my book because uh, my book. It's called Med School After Menopause, The Journey of My Soul, but it's really um a, a story uh, you know, stories from my own life and my near death experiences, and then how I became clairvoyant, clairaudient, and clairsentient to help all the readers so that they can tune into their own intuitive abilities because we are all divine spirits and we all, to a certain extent, have this capability. Some will have more because it's part of their life path, but we all have it. And so my book is really about educating people and, and teaching people how they can tune into that themselves. But um, I would be shown different things. And sometimes it would be um, audio, like clairaudient. Sometimes it would be clairvoyant. Um, and so one of the stories I tell in the book is um, that one morning I woke up and I, I saw three you know, images. And the first image is a black scratch across the van door. And then... Uh, the second image is two of my kids in the car, and I know it's my my second son and my daughter in the backseat. And then the third image is I'm leaving a note on the windshield of a black sedan car. So I'm trying to figure out, so I tell my kids, because at this point, we live in East Bay, San Francisco, and I'm driving them to the city every day because these two kids were at the San Francisco Ballet School, and they train six days a week. So Monday through Saturday, and then if they're also performing at the opera house with the ballet, then it's rehearsals on top of that. So it's a lot of driving back and forth over this, uh, over the Bay Bridge, getting into the city. So I tell them about, you know, what I had seen, and we go through all the intersections, where could we possibly be hit, we're going to have to make a left turn to get hit on the right side of the car. And we figured out there was one intersection, right after we get off the Bay Bridge, we, we get off in the exit and then we go down to the light and we make a left. And that is one of the streets in San Francisco that has oncoming traffic. Because like many cities, big cities, there's one way streets everywhere. And for 10 days, we get to this intersection and my two kids you know, notices are pressed up against the window. Mom, the coast is clear, you can go. <laughs> if after 10 days, we keep driving. We are at our uh, local bookstore in Walnut Creek, which is in East Bay of San Francisco. And we come out of the bookstore, and it's real. The parking lot is really crowded, and I'm trying to get onto this tiny little street. And there's a big truck that's offloading, probably books for the bookstore. And I'm trying to turn. I'm trying to turn right on to the street. And as I turn right, my the right side of my car scrapes the car that is parked on the street, which is of course is a black sedan car. So at that point, I knew this is this is it. I know what the scratch was going to look like. And I got out of the car, walked around the car and just threw my arms up into the air and just started laughing. Absolutely hysterically, because I was I was like, oh, my God, there it is. I've been waiting for this for like two weeks now and nobody was hurt. And here, of course, I am leaving a a note on the windshield of black sedan car because I was thinking, why isn't there a driver for the other car? right kept i kept thinking it was a, an accident that had happened so it's just but stories like this would has to happen you know sometimes there would be a clear audience i would hear things sometimes i would see things uh where i would feel things so that just developed over a period of 12 years to the point where if i the spirit world dropped in on me or i would just be like okay what <laughs> because i actually years, interact right I knew, and then they told me, um, I was looking on the computer because I was thinking, I need to go back to work, and, you know, my kids are teenagers now, and um, so this is uh, 2004, because my daughter was born in 90, 1992, and I'm looking on the computer, and I found this medical degree, and it said naturopathic medicine, and I said, wow that sounds so cool. They do acupuncture, homeopathy, botanical medicine, but they also do all the pharmaceuticals. So you have a really big tool bag because you can work kind of like a regular MD and prescribe medications. But some people don't do well with that. And especially people who have had near death experiences are notorious for not doing well with pharmaceutical drugs. Really? Yeah. And so, you know, I wanted that other piece of the botanical and the homeopathy and acupuncture. And then I realized, I said, oh, no, I can't do this. It's a real medical school. I'm in my 40s now. I can't can't go to med school. So I closed my computer and I said, okay, I'll look again tomorrow. I'll find something, you know, to go back, you know, to school. And I walked to the kitchen and the spirit world drops in. And they said, no, you have to go to medical school and become a naturopathic doctor. And you have to bring messages and healing to the people. You have to combine East and West, which I was thinking, well, naturopathic medicine kind of is East and West. And you have to write two books, no wait, three. And I'm like, what do you mean? I can't see the spirits yet. I can only hear them telepathically because I hadn't developed far enough that I could, you know, see a spirit, the image of a spirit. And so I said, what do you mean? What do you mean writing book? I, I can't write. What am I supposed to write about? And he's like, well, the time is right, we will tell you. For right now, just go to medical school. You need that degree. And I never understood. And I was like, what do you mean bring messages to people? And he's like, well, the time is right, we will tell you. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah, like, I don't I don't understand the message, but that was the message. So I enroll in the pre-med classes. In, within a week, I was in school taking, you know, biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, and all this stuff. And... I was a business major. So remember, I was a business major in college with computer science. I didn't have any of the bio and chemistry. So I actually had to take high school advanced placement biology, high school advanced placement chemistry before I could even take the college classes and then work my way up so and get all the prereqs. And there was no guarantee I was even going to be admitted. And there were times when I was like, wow, maybe I'm, you know, I'm just doing all this for nothing. And who's going to accept somebody into medical school that's, you know, in their late 40s or early 50s? So I finished all that. And then um, my daughter was still living at home. And so I postponed it and I went back to work. I worked in um, cancer detection uh, for a, a biotech company for four years. And so I was a sales representative and then I was a sales manager. And then I applied into medical school. And I only applied to two schools, and one was here in Phoenix. There's only five naturopathic medical schools in the United States. And so I applied to the one in Phoenix and I applied to the one in Seattle. And I was accepted to both. I had to go to you know personal interviews and type out long, you know the application process for medical school. We got to type of papers and you know why do you want to do this? And I was accepted. And so I went. So I was accepted into medical school when I was fifty four and you know that's also part of my life because or in the story of my book because you know it's never too late to transform your life it really isn't you can transform I just your have life to and it's to
0: say, your Saturn return your second Saturn return really <laughs> feels like when you went to medical school especially being in sagittarius higher mm-hmm. learning it aligns so perfectly for you. Yeah. So I want to talk about, uh, obviously, you're a doctor now, you made Mm -hmm. it through medical school. I want to talk to you about how you use your abilities now as a doctor. So this is something I was actually just learning about a couple weeks ago. The fact that there are medical intuitives, is that the right word Mm -hmm. for it? And they're actually more commonly used than people realize. And I heard, correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of times people don't even realize a medical intuitive is in the room because people, they don't want to weird patients out. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that's for sure. And it depends who my, you know, my patient or client is. So yeah, so it's interesting because then after I graduated from med school in 2016, I, within six months, I was guided. I met someone who, who had brought in my mother and I was still in disbelief and said, you can't just bring in a spirit for somebody else. But sure, you can. And I was told I needed to go to Arthur the College, which is in England. And it it's a very renowned school for psychic development. And people come from all over the world to study there. And so I've been there several times. And, for, and you, you go, you can go for a week. So it's you start at nine in the morning and you end at nine o'clock at night. So it's 12 hour days for seven days. So that it's not exactly a vacation. You work really hard the whole time to develop these abilities. And um, so it wasn't until after you know I graduated that that um really opened up. So within that first year after graduating, I was already at Arthur Finley College and opening up that. Uh, the the medical uh, or just the being a medium an evidential psychic medium, but then what happened later is after I get that training, it becomes and they told me that but I didn't understand it but of course the teachers already know <laughs> they said this is this is you're gonna get a lot of medical information because you went through medical school, and so of course now that is how it's been combined and because so whether you call it a medical intuitive or a medical medium for me I work. With the spirit world when I work with people, so so that's you know like a medical medium, but also work intuitively as a psychic, so it's kind of a combination of a medical medium and medical intuitive. But so when I work in the you know if I work as a physician, yes, there are times when I'm gonna when I, the spirit world drops in on me and the person comes in and says you know. Uh, You know, have allergies or something, but you're hearing that they have lung cancer or something, and you're, you know, following, and you, you know, oh you know, you can't hear anything. You're listening, but sure enough, you know, you, you, when you follow through, something else is going to come up, whatever it was that you heard, but you don't tell the patient that. You're just kind of suggesting, you know, maybe we should just for, you know, just for. Sure, make sure there is nothing else going on. This has been going on for a while. Why don't we do an x-ray and and just make sure there isn't something brewing down there, right? So you kind of guide them to that. But then when you work, if you have a spiritual patient, you know, some people are drawn to me because they have um they' spiritual themselves and they believe that they're, you know we are a greater divine um, beings than we we really realize. And so then you can be a little bit more open with them and say, oh, you know, spirit world disrupting, telling me this. What, what do you think about that? Or Do you feel this or that? But when I work um, spiritually, so I really divide my time. I work either, I work as a doctor and I follow, you know, the, the, my medical license and how I'm supposed to practice medicine and I have to chart everything and I got to code everything and, and fill my buckets and run the right tests. I can't just say, oh, I think you have this. I got to back it up with, you know, medical tests, Uh, or lab work right but if you work if i work spiritually with people i have two businesses so i work spiritually with people um and that's very different because now i can work intuitively and i you know remind them that you're not seeing me as a doctor now even though they already know that and they've already signed (laughs) signed a a a waiver that they understand they're working with me uh, spiritually Um, And then, but what happens is that when I work with people spiritually, sometimes people just show up on the screen and I say, do you have this problem? Because like, this is what I'm hearing. And they're like, oh my God, how did you know that? And, you know, and then we just go straight in, you know, to that. And I said, well, this is, you know, something that typically gets missed and we we are not very, we, we don't get trained very well for this particular disease. But what state do you live in? And I'm gonna, you know, go find a doctor that does this in your state, because these are the people that can help you. And these are things that typically get missed. So it's very interesting, because also the people that show up are the people that are supposed to be working with me, right? Because they're guided, there is some reason why, why they feel like, oh, I should be I should check in with this person, because maybe they know, because many times people say, I have, I've I've had this problem for 15 years, they did an MRI, a CT scan, and all these other tests, and all this lab work, and nothing is wrong, and you're like, well, these, what you have is this thing that typically doesn't show up on an MRI, and this is, you know, this is what I'm hearing, and so it's it's interesting, so people get drawn, or they get guided to come see the person that can help them, that's, I truly believe that, if I'm the right person, they're going to be drawn to work with me, if, somebody else has the answer, they're going to be drawn to them.
0: How amazing. So is there any ritual or practice that you do to drop into that state, to be able to pull in messages from the spirit world, or does
1: it just happen naturally for you? Now it just happens naturally. It's just there. Yeah, I'm always, if, when I go to Arthur Findlay, my teachers say, oh, it's like you have one foot on earth and one foot <laughs> up in the spirit world. It's like, they always say, it's like you're straddling the two worlds. But that's sort of what my life is like now, because it's been a quarter of a century of the spirit world dropping in. And now it's just, it's just part of my existence. I think it's just, you're just used to um, getting guidance and um, hearing things. If I'm supposed Can to- Can you shut it way, off? Huh?
0: you shut it off? Or is it just yeah. kind of like a radio that's always on?
1: Yeah, I would say it's a radio that's always on. But in the beginning, there is a that was a transition phase where when it really started to open up, <clears throat> and I started to be able to pull in spirits for other people, versus just the spirit just drops in and gives you a message, which is for many, many years, that's what it was like. But now I have the ability, you know, if somebody shows up and say, you know, I have this problem, or you know, my dad passed away, or you know, I'm. I would like to connect with someone in the spirit world. So that's different. And um, but then, if I'm doing like a true medium work or pulling in a spirit for somebody else, I usually sit in meditation before then, before uh, doing that, so I can get into that correct vibrational state. But when I work um, with people as a medical medium or medical intuitive, uh, it's different because I'm. I think most of the messages come from uh, my spirit guide. So the spirit guide that works with me and they're kind of like always with you versus I got to go out into the universe and call in the spirit that's going to come and talk to you today, right? So that's different. Uh, It's a different technique in, in, in a way, at least for me. Yeah, one of my friends
0: is a medium and she says that as well. Like when she's writing a different spirit spiritual presence comes yeah. through versus when she's speaking it's almost like mm-hmm. different channels of a radio really yeah. so fascinating yeah. um so now this is this is your life you yeah. use these abilities to yeah. help people every day now how do you view life you know and spirituality mm-hmm. what are your beliefs now coming out of
1: this oh it's so different because it makes you realize that we are divine, you know, divine creatures that are part of a very divine universe. And there is no religion that is better than another religion. And our existence is, um, and our our existence and connection to that divine source is, is bigger than the religions themselves, because it's all, um, when you are on the other side, you understand that it's all about love and acceptance. And a lot of the religions are, you know, we tend to forget that somebody actually wrote these words in the book of that religion, somebody decided what what was going to go in that book, and what was not going to go in that book, which um, most of the time were men. (laughs) Right. And so think about what that society looked like 2000 years ago, when they decided what they should write about in this book, based on how society functioned back then and that was the guidance that that person had received this is the you know what you should be doing now but you know it doesn't hold true in society today and we i think that we have a movement now that people realize that uh, we are divinely interconnected with each other with our ancestors with our um, those that come after us and so i work a lot with ancestral healing where you know, people have been, you know, sick again for 15 years, and they can't figure out what it is. And then you start talking to them, and you realize that this is actually something that was passed down. And so we can actually inherit trauma via DNA. And they have the research now to actually show that Um, we, you know, it gets passed down. So if your grandfather, most of us had grandfathers that were in the war, right? And now, so every time he heard the siren that You know, it was uh, the bombs were going to go off. He thought, this is the day I'm going to die. And he's taking shelter. And then he survives the war and he has kids. And now his granddaughter is born. And every time she hears a siren, she has a panic attack. But she doesn't Mm -hmm. understand why. She's never been in. She's never had a traumatic experience about you know, sirens. She's never been in a war. Nobody works um, with the police or fire department in her house. She doesn't, there's no reason in her own life experiences why she should have these panic attacks when she hears sirens. But that was passed down genetically on the DNA from the grandfather. So they've done research with mice where they where they could show that they, they took the mice. So it's called, um, the research study came out back in 2013 and it was published in Nature Neuroscience. And it was a study that was done by um, Emory University School of Medicine. It was led by Brian Diaz. And they took uh, mice and they exposed them to an electric shock every time they smelled cherry blossom smell. And then they took the sperm of the of this mice that had been shocked when they smelled the cherry blossom, and they artificially inseminated the female mice, then the female mice gave birth and had these little pups. And guess what? These little pups would be would fear the cherry blossom smell. They would be more jumpy and afraid, even though they had never been exposed and their mothers had never been exposed. It came via the, the sperm from the father mouse down to the offspring. And so when you think about that, and they could see that the mice actually had more M71 receptors, and so they could even smell the cherry blossom at a lower level than the fathers could smell it, because they were, they were sensitized to this smell so that they would you know survive. So they had more receptors, <laughs> they were more sensitive to the cherry blossom smell. Now think about that of all the traumatic experiences that your grandparents had. And your mother was made from you, you know, the eggs that you're made from, your mom made the egg you came from when she was a 20-week-old fetus in your grandmother's womb. So just even what was going on in your grandmother's life when she was pregnant with your mom, and then, you know, pass that down to you. And so see how it like, gets passed down through the generation. So it's all the all the traumatic experiences of our ancestors. It is all their reactions their actions, and their interactions to their environment and what they experienced that then gets passed down through the generations. And so here, you know, here we are wondering what happened to our grandparents. And why do I have this fear? Why do I have, you know, why am I having these experiences when it doesn't relate to your own um, childhood or your own lives?
0: I think, you know, I'm sure you've noticed with the rise of spirituality, there's also this rise of acknowledging Mm ancestral, acknowledging that trauma gets passed down from generation to generation. Does that give you hope in your line of work that more people will just, do you think just the awareness of that trauma can help us heal that trauma? Or do you think, you know, it has to be something that, we work through with a therapist or
1: what what what's your take on that i think i mean once you create awareness sometimes i think people can figure out where it came from when you yes because it's is that is you're looking for that aha moment when people say that's it oh now i see it i understand why i have this problem you know or when i work with people sometimes people sign up for medical intuitive and we end up in ancestral healing because you know what they're telling me and i said okay they've they've exhausted all the tests okay so it's coming from somewhere else and then when we start looking we can see you know sometimes the pattern is just so clear you know the mother i've had patients it's like an ancestral clock i've had um i've had clients that you know the mother the the their father dies when the mother is 40 and so the mother becomes single when she's 40 the father separates then the daughter grows up, and when she's 40, she divorces her husband so that she's also becoming single when she's 40, just like her mom. But then her mom gets um, you know, cancer. Let's say she gets colon cancer when she's 45. And then the daughter, when she's 45, she also gets colon cancer. And it's, you know, part of that is you know, genetic, it could be genetic inheritance, whatever, but it's very ancestral. And the the you're um you're aligning and merging and um there's all these different ways that you pick up on your ancestors and you know your own childhood experiences you know (laughs) are baked into that
0: this is i mean resonating for me on so many levels literally to the right of me i have a picture of my grandma and my mom and i because my whole spiritual awakening um one of my main missions is to break ancestral patterns to break generational trauma and it's given me so much more compassion for my grandmother Mm -hmm. and my mother understanding even understanding that my grandmother's mother was an alcoholic who died Mm -hmm. in a rocking chair with a bottle in her hand Mm -hmm. and then you know of course my grandma struggles with Mm -hmm. alcoholism my mom struggles with alcoholism so i really I feel like my whole life i've been Mm trying like how did i end up here (laughs) like what like how did i end up with these people but also Mm -hmm. that awareness has Mm -hmm. been huge for me and really um you know in my breaking point in my own dark night of the Mm -hmm. soul it was the awareness my mom's watching right now love you mom (laughs) Um, but it was the awareness of like do i want to keep these patterns going or do i want to do things Mm -hmm. differently but something else that comes to mind um, is my dad's side of the family. Mm-hmm. And they almost have this joke they talk about that nobody makes it past 60. Everybody dies yeah. before 60. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Will this person make it past 60? I'm not going to live that long, blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah.
0: And as I've become more aware of my own spirituality, every time someone says mm-hmm. that, of course, I don't want to like call people out, but I'm like, don't yeah. don't put that out there. So my question to you is how powerful is the mind in rewriting these generational patterns? You know, how powerful is it to tell yourself, I am going to be the one who makes it past 60?
1: I think it's, I think it's very powerful. Um, so the way you, you know, there's different ways of looking at it. So the one thing we always have to watch out for is, um, because being the holistic doctor, I get a lot of people saying, I can heal this. And, you know, I have I have breast cancer and I can heal this. But I'm telling them, you know what, if, in your case, you're actually better off doing the chemotherapy because that's what I'm hearing for you. And that is the gold standard, right? So it goes medically, that's what we're supposed to say, right? That that is the, the best treatment whether that is truly the best treatment depends on the person and what type of cancer they have if it's slow growing or fast growing and their medical history but there are times when people think that because you know i eat right i do everything right i can pray i can meditate and i'm going to heal this but you have a problem that has manifested physically and sometimes you have to use what's in the physical world to actually heal the physical body while you're still doing all the spiritual work and energetic work in, in combination with whatever traditional medicine. And I always talk about how we don't know what ticket we got, you know. When we, we do you have the ticket for a miraculous healing, or do you have the ticket where you're supposed to do traditional Western medicine? We don't know which ticket we're holding on to. And so I always tell people go with you know everything that you have that, that can create healing for whatever your, whatever ails you.
0: I feel like you picked up on something I really needed to hear. Actually. Um, my best friend just got diagnosed with cancer Mm -hmm. and being a spiritual person, you know, I have these women around me who are highly spiritual and Mm -hmm. we're very like, Oh, don't let her do chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so bad. Um, Mm -mm. but I've just really been trying to lean into that, you know, everything is going to happen how it's supposed to. She's yeah. going to get the help she needs and do what's best for her. And of course not influence my mm-hmm. opinion on anything, I have to yeah. no say, and what she does yeah. with her body. But um, yeah, I feel like you kind of picked up on something yeah. I needed to hear. I don't know if you felt that, but I, I appreciate it. Yeah. I really do. So as we're wrapping this up, is there anything else that you would like people to know about your work and the power of, bringing in the spiritual world to medicine and traditional you know practices
1: yeah i mean i think the best way to um to work on any physical problem is to work on on both ends to work with it spiritually and to work with it physically and some people will heal you know using botanical medicine acupuncture Uh, drinking that carrot juice or whatever they're into. And other people will need the traditional Western medicine. And you just have to learn what's going to work for you. But I think also there is a danger because there's so much spirituality and movement um, that we're seeing now. And that's, that's amazing. And there's a lot of I see a lot of women stepping up and really, um, you know, understanding that this is something spiritual, this is something ancestral, like, I can't solve this. And then, uh, taking you know going take going on that journey and creating healing for themselves their ancestral lineage and for those that come after them but it's also um important to know that you know sometimes we we can't we can't dis- we can't just say this because we're spiritual that oh I can heal this because some people do need surgery to heal it and it doesn't matter though sometimes i know people who have been sick for 10 15 years and tried everything well and seen you know seen medical intuitives and worked with people spiritually and they meditate every day and they're doing everything right but guess what they need surgery because they're not going to take care of this physical problem any other way you can't you know you can't just meditate away a cancer or something there are people that miraculously heal but are you that one person that ha- holds that ticket why are you why would you take that chance do you ever
0: working with clients hear yeah. that guidance though of you know? Do you ever diet or um, uh, prescribe people meditation or any
1: practices like that? Yeah, I do actually. Um, people who have been on you know two or three blood pressure medications and herbal medicine, blood pressure is you, you're you're afraid they're going to have a stroke that day because their blood pressure is so high um gotten them off all blood pressure medications and herbal medications through just teaching them meditation and you know change your life you cannot live like the way you're living you're gonna have to take time for yourself you're gonna have to meditate every day you're gonna have to take breaks and you're gonna have to take care of yourself because many times what I see especially with women is the problem with the self-worth and not taking the time for themselves everybody else is more important in their life. And they're the caregivers, they're the caretakers, they're the people pleasers. And they are also fed that because it is how they gained love from their own mother in childhood was through being that person. When I do something right, I get love and compassion in return. But when I do something wrong, I don't. And so you grow up to be the people pleaser, and you grow up to take care of everyone else. But It comes back to that you're doing everything for everybody else. And now your own physical health is eventually going to fail because you're not taking care of that. And it comes back to self-worth of of each of these women. It's just, you know, realizing that you are amazing. You are worth being pampered. You are worth, uh, you know, taking time for yourself and doing things for yourself. And you can't just give away. You can't keep emptying your own cup all the time you also have to put water back into your cup otherwise your cup is going to be empty and you're just going to dry out (laughs) so you know it's filling the cup giving you know giving some spoons of water and then putting water back into that cup but it's to create that balance and that's what i see with a lot of women is is that ability to you know tell yourself you're amazing you're doing great but stop being doing you know everything for everybody else Dr. Lottie, everything you have said Mm -hmm. in the past 15 minutes, I'm like, this is meant for my
0: people. Like I, I just, I have had full body chills for most of this interview. (laughs) So the last question I want to ask you Mm -hmm. is what recommendations do you Mm -hmm. have for someone who is not psychic, who is Mm -hmm. not tapped into those abilities? What's a first step to kind of introduce yourself or open yourself up to spiritual guidance?
1: the number one thing would be to meditate and to build that skill. So when I started meditating, five minutes seemed like an eternity, right? I couldn't I could not sit still that long. And, you know, I'm very active and I'm a Gemini, so I like to talk and meet people, right? I can tell you're a Gemini by this interview. You're very chatty, which I absolutely love. So it was really, it was, it really took practice for me to, you know, now I could meditate an hour or even longer, no problem. It seems like 10 minutes to me now, but it's, it's building that skill because it is through the silence. And when you quiet down that your channels open up and out. So you have to learn to you know, shut off from the world and create silence and stillness within yourself.
0: I'm so glad we're seeing the rise of meditation yeah. as well, along with spirituality. Of course, mm-hmm. they work hand in hand. But especially this day and age, with all of us on our phones, mm-hmm. all of the information coming in, quieting the mind, seems mm-hmm. like it's probably harder than ever, but more important than ever Mm -hmm. as well so i love to end all of these shows with a card pull an oracle card pull i'm using the work your light deck by rebecca campbell and as i'm getting this out and shuffling if you want to just tell people where to find you if they want to work with you where to get your book all that good stuff
1: yeah uh so i have two websites one is dr Lottie. d-r-l-o-t-t-e And that is really my medical website. It talks about what I do and uh, different treatments that I provide. But it also has a link from there to my other website. It says, if you want to work with Dr. Lottis spiritually, click here. And then it takes you to my other website, Divine Spiritual Essence. And that is where you can book uh, a session with me for medical medium or medical intuitive or ancestral healing or wholehearted, which is um, what... I call the session of when people don't really know what they're doing, and they might want to have connect with somebody in the spirit world, or they want directions in their own life, you know, psychic directions, where am I going? I'm at this crossroad in my life. I don't know where I'm going next. So that's that kind of session. And it doesn't really matter if you sign up for an ancestral healing session or a medical intuitive, because many times people sign up for a medical intuitive session, but if it needs to be an ancestral healing session, it just becomes an ancestral healing session. So it, it kind of can go in e- either direction. So that's my book. Yeah, my book. Yeah, you, you can see the picture there, too. Uh, my book actually won an award uh, about six months ago uh, from Living Now Congratulations. Bookables. Thanks. Uh, and it won first place in the category of spiritual leadership. And so I'm really honored uh, to have received that award. And it is a book that um, will teach you how to tune into your own uh, psychic abilities by me sharing my own journey. But at the end of each chapter, I also have really short exercises that you can easily integrate every day, and it's to change your perception of your own life, and so that you can tune into becoming more intuitive and and spiritual as you go through life, and then also showing you that there is it's never too late to change or transform your life or go after what you want. So and that book is available on Amazon and Kindle and a printed paperback version or audiobook. And it's also available on many other online platforms like Barnes and Nobles and many audiobook platforms that I don't even know the names of. There's like 40 of them. <laughs> but you shouldn't have any problems finding it uh, on any of the platforms online.
0: Awesome. Okay. Let's pull a card and see what's coming through. What do we need to know? Oh, we got the keepers of the earth card. You are not alone. Ancient ancestors stand beside you. Very spot on to what we just talked about. Let's see what the guidebook says. Okay. Keepers of the earth, you are not alone. Ancient ancestors stand beside you. You are so supported. You do not stand alone. You have a magnificent team of helpers, both in this world and of the earth, who are here to help you every step of the way. Call upon them for assistance. They're here to help. The keepers of the earth acknowledge the work that you've done already and are ready to work through you. They bow at your feet and thank you for wanting to stand for them, to devote your life to protecting the earth in your unique way. It's time to increase your capacity to receive support in the physical realm. This can come in form of financial abundance, acts of service from strangers, or people flocking to help you and your work. The only thing that is stopping you right now is your capacity to receive support. You deserve to be rewarded for the work you are doing. You do not need to go at it alone. Call upon the keepers of the earth to help you and your mission. Open your heart and your mind to receiving more than you ever thought possible. What kind of support do you need? Call it in right away. All right. I mean, so spot on for the work you do for everything we talked about. Um, and very representative, I feel like of your experience Mm -hmm. as well. So yeah, it's always spot on, but it's just such beautiful confirmation. I always tell people if you're trying to get into spirituality and you don't know where to start to receive guidance, Oracle cards Mm -hmm. are my go-to because you just, you can't deny it sometimes yeah. that it's it's meant to be. Well, thank you so That's much crazy. for joining me. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge so much. Like I said, we could probably talk for four more hours between a Gemini and a Virgo <laughs> going back and forth. Um but I really yes. appreciate you taking mm-hmm. this time and sharing your wisdom with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me as a guest. I really enjoyed it
0: same same to you and thank you for joining us as well for bringing an open mind and your curiosity and willingness to learn from dr lottie i appreciate you i love you and i will see you right back here in the next episode but until then stay curious Thank you so much for joining our discussion today. If you enjoyed this episode of The Spiritual Journalist, you can find more on thespiritualjournalist.com or you can listen to our conversations wherever you enjoy podcasts. And if you want to learn more about astrology, join me live every weekday morning on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for Transits Today, where we break down the energy of the day based on the movement of the planets and start our morning off in a high vibe. All of the information we share on The Spiritual Journalist is completely free to you. So if you'd like to support more content like this, the easiest way to do so is to subscribe to our YouTube page. Head over to The Spiritual Shop on our website and buy yourself a little something. Or if you're feeling extra generous, you can buy me a coffee to fuel future live streams. Just tap the link in the description or head to buymeacoffee.com and search The Spiritual Journalist. I'm so grateful you found us here and I can't wait for our next conversation.